Welcome to The Well Woman Show. Each episode is a transformational journey using mindfulness, feminism, leadership, and strategy to support you to thrive personally, generate wealth, and impact your community. And now, here's your host, feminist thought leader, London School of Economics grad, leadership consultant, and transformational coach, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, Well Women. On the show this week, I talked to Joanne Mitchell, a highly dedicated educator who deeply believes in people and is committed to creating equity through education. She focuses on leading her staff to provide life-changing opportunities to traditionally underserved student populations. Joanne has 25 years experience across the country as a classroom teacher, school psychologist, and building and district-level administrator. She now provides students with an exemplary option for their education, specifically targeting first-generation students, a passion area for her as she was a first-generation high school and college graduate herself. All the information shared today can be found at the show notes at wellwomanlife.com slash 190show. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico and High Desert Yoga in Albuquerque. Now to my interview with Joanne Mitchell. I'm speaking with Joanne Mitchell today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Joanne, as we heard in the introduction, you run a charter school and you've got all of this stuff going on. But I want to start by asking you um, to share with listeners, who are you in the world today? So who am I in the world today? I would like to believe that I'm a huge advocate for kids in general and uh, kids around education. I believe that education can be an equalizer for kids and provide opportunity for students. Okay. And how did you come to that? Like, what what was um, your path to to be a leader in education? So I have to take you back to 1972 <laughs> when I was born. So I'm a first generation high school and college graduate. My, I was born to parents who were teen parents and high school dropouts. And so we grew up in, um, I would say, pretty extreme poverty when I grew up. And education really was my ticket to a different life. So I, you know, there was a lot of child abuse, domestic violence in my home, and that's what I grew up around. And I half joke with people, but it's the truth. You know, there was, um, you would be severely punished for not doing well in school in my household. So there was a small blessing to the whole thing because it literally allowed me to get into college. And my going to college truly was just to get out of my house. Like it was literally a pathway to get out. So when I went to college, I um, there were I really didn't have anybody in high school who advocated for me and said, hey, we grew up in a really small town. So everybody knew who we were, you know, and that my parents weren't educated. And um, so I did well in school, but I never had an advocate in school who really pushed me. So I ended up going to a private college and it wasn't because I selected to do that. I just, I had no idea that there was a difference between a state university and a private college or that there was a difference in cost. So that's how I ended up in college, ended up in a very expensive private school. And I can tell you really felt um, complete fish out of water for the whole four years that I was there. Didn't feel like I belonged, didn't feel like I fit in. And it wasn't so much that I didn't understand academically how to do it. I, I just really didn't understand college. I didn't completely look like the kids. I mean, I went to a private school where kids drove brand new BMWs and had brand new cars, and I didn't even have a bicycle. So there were a lot of things that made me feel very um, 
inadequate and much like an imposter to be there. And so I got through, I grappled through college, not so much academically, but again, like really feeling like an inferiority and fitting in. And then, well, you know, I've shared with people too that I I took classes that I totally didn't need. I mean, it was my sophomore year in college and one of my sweet mates had asked me what my major was. And I told her education and she's like, that's odd. She's like, I am too. And this was a small private school. (laughs) So she was like, she's like, what year are you in? I'm like, my sophomore year. And she's like, me too. She's like, really weird. We've never taken a class together. <laughs> so, so it was through this conversation that I was completely mortified and embarrassed that I realized that there was a course sequence and I wasn't doing it. I was literally just registering randomly for classes. I did not know what I was doing, had no clue what I was doing. And so, um, so again, years later, I mean, I can look back at this now and reflect that that was just the fact that I was a first generation. I needed guidance. But at the time when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you feel inadequate. You feel like an imposter. You feel like, who am I? Tr- what am I trying to prove? Like, this is not for me. So, but it was through college that, you know, I I took these classes, I took lots of psychology classes, fell in love with psychology and started to really process a little bit of some of the stuff that I experienced growing up. And so it's just a huge learning experience for me. I got married right out of college and, um, My ex-husband now is an athlete, so we traveled around. And then going school to school, different schools, we lived in Columbus, Georgia. Um, I lived here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We moved back upstate New York. So we were in lots of different places, but I started finding this theme over and over and over again in schools, especially schools that served um, a higher poverty population, that I, I saw the same profile over and over of kids who, from my perspective, had so much potential, but... There were just so many gaps in the educational system. And then I started finding it didn't matter if you were on the East Coast, you know, Southeast in Georgia, Northeast in New York, or out here in Albuquerque, that it wasn't that much different. The need was so profound for kids. So after doing that for a while, I, um, you know, eventually worked. I got a job in Harlem at a charter school, and that was my first experience in a charter school. And um, kind of liked the freedom and the autonomy of being able to kind of put together a unique plan. And so I, you know, thought about opening my own school. And then fast forward, you know, ended up, um, I supported opening a school in New York, but then ended up coming here and opening my own. So I felt like out of all the places I lived, New Mexico was one that really had a need for high quality education. And I also felt like that I could be a voice for many times the voiceless, you know, for kids who didn't don't know the pathway and for, for parents who are well-intended, want to do well by and for their kids, but don't necessarily know what that looks like. Yeah, and and a, a good place to really make an impact. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about what you've done here with with the school mission achievement and success charter school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You have approximately twelve hundred students enrolled, and one of the things that I noticed walking in the front door to to do this interview was that it said um, on the board that you have a hundred percent graduation rate. And that all of those people either go to college or into the military. That's an astounding statistic and one that I'm sure you share widely. Um, what do you attribute that success to? So there's a um, relentless focus on ensuring that kids succeed here. And I know that sounds basic, but but that's so core to what we do. We really believe foundationally that every kid absolutely can do this. And we believe so wholeheartedly that 
education can be an equalizer um, when done right. So with our graduation rate, and I'll add a couple of things to that, um, 50% of our students who graduate are first-generation high school graduates. And again, you know, my passion with this is um, there's a very personal piece to it, obviously, that I just shared. And then, you know, just a deep core belief that this absolutely can be done. And when you believe in somebody and you really push and you provide all those resources for them, that, that they will do it. And we hope, you know, from a social emotional standpoint that kids pay it forward, you know, and eventually give back in some way to be meaningful, um, not just contributors, but truly give back to society. And when you say a relentless commitment to each child's success, that makes me think that there must be more going on here than just like coming to school at eight and leaving at three or whatever. And and like, you know, having a teacher, are there wraparound services? and, And how does that look? Great question. So absolutely. So we really try to focus on both the needs of the whole child and obviously the academic side. And so I'll talk about some of the whole child needs. So we do, we provide a free before and after school program. So our program opens at seven in the morning and ends at six o'clock at night, 100% free, absolutely no cost to our families. And we allow people to drop their children off, whether they're in preschool all the way up through high school. Um, We have free dental clinics. So we provide that twice a year where they'll do free cleanings and small fillings and sealants for students. Wait, on campus? Yes, on campus. And so we also provide free um, immunizations. So if students are missing shots that they need, um, we have a a clinic here where they'll do those shots, whether it's flu shots, um, actual required immunizations for school, the boosters that they require, like, you know, going into sixth or seventh grade, whatever grade that is. Um, We provide free meals. So they have free breakfast here, free lunch and free dinner every single day that school's in session, starting with the first day, ending on the last day. And let me ask you about the meals, because I did notice that, too, um, on your board. Uh, When you say free, hot breakfast, lunch, and dinner, who is cooking that? And and what are you you cooking? Like, how how are you getting kids to eat healthy meals? So it's, um, we we contract with an agency, Canteen is um, the school food provider that we use. And they have, you know, for example, I'll give you a couple breakfast items, you know, they might have pancakes, they might have like, you know, a breakfast burrito or, but they're hot meals, they have to meet the USDA requirements. And we actually require our students go through the breakfast line. So we let them know that they don't have to eat it, but they have to take it. But I can tell you by doing that, that every single kid for the most part, unless they slip through the system, gets a breakfast and almost every kid eats something. We find that when kids get older, when they get into the upper elementary, middle school grades and high school, they won't eat, whether it's, um, I don't know, a stigma with, you know, getting the free meal or if it's they're too worried about socializing. But what we do know is that for many of our students, this these are their meals. So we do have them take those. And and we also work with our kids to get surveys and get different, you know, we work with our school food provider to look at the food that we see that kids are eating or where the waste is going and stuff so that we're minimizing offering those options and providing options that students want. And you also provide dinner and it says, it says for the kids and their families. So do, do some of the parents come for dinner too? Like, what is that? So I think there might be confusion. So the after-school meal is only for the students, but we do have – so the after-school meal is a different program. That's with um, – it's still Canteen who um, 
cooks and prepares the meals. But we work with CYFD. They have like an at-risk meals program so that we provide that in our after-school program. But it's only for students who are enrolled who go here. But then we do a monthly mobile food pantry with our families. It's actually happening today. And uh, we wrote a grant with Roadrunner Food Bank. And so once a month, we feed 50 of our families. They come and they get a laundry basket size full of food. And uh, we do that every single month. And again, that's through a grant that we wrote with the Roadrunner Food Bank. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were talking about the wraparound services. Um, we talked a, a bit about meals and health care. What other kinds of things are you doing to address the whole child so that um, so that you can live up to your commitment of like 100% success? So, you know, one of the the basic foundational premises behind what we do is that we don't want poverty to be a factor in students receiving this option. We provide free school uniforms, so our students do not pay for their school uniforms. Every single school supply is provided for the student, pencils, notebooks, pens. They have to provide nothing. So that list that you get at the beginning of the year that's bring all these items or pay your $40, $50, we don't do any of that here. Everything is provided to the students. Uh, field trips, we don't do a lot of them, but any field trip, they don't even contribute a dollar to it. Um, we do college trips starting in the middle school, and they take at least two college trips a year, and that's fully financed by the school. So essentially what we're doing is trying to eliminate absolutely anything financially that would impair a student's ability to be able to attend our school. Transportation, we provide bus services, and that might sound like it's just a common thing, but at a lot of charter schools, it's not. And so we provide bus services, you know, around the city for our students. We provide bus passes to get kids here. Um, we have intensive attendance support. Um, so we have three attendance coaches that work with families to make sure kids are here, here on time. We maintain about a 95% attendance rate. So let me ask you about that. What does the coach do and how involved do they get in like contacting parents, go, like sitting down with parents? Like, What does that look like? Highly involved. So we, um, we, if parents have to call out their student if they're going to be absent, and but even if they call out and it's excused, the child's sick or they have a doctor's appointment, we still meet with parents um, at three absences, at five absences, then again at seven absences, and at ten absences. Generally, doesn't go too far beyond that, but we meet with them immediately to really emphasize how important it is that students are here, and then try to work because generally we find that if the student has a lot of absences. There's something going on. It could be a financial hardship that they have one vehicle, vehicles broken down, struggling to get their kids to school, work schedule issues. Sometimes we'll have older siblings watching little siblings so they don't come to school on those days. Um, there's, you know, we've run into many situations where there's stuff going on in the home, whether there's domestic violence, things like that. And so the whole family stays home. So there's lots of different things we uncover, and it's never from a the perspective of trying to be punitive. Um, it, it's more from a partnership standpoint of what's going on. We want them to understand the impact that this has. And then we work on a plan. Like what is our plan to make sure that the student can be here? And do you connect or do those coaches connect the parents with services and, and those kinds of things that they need in that moment? Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge component of the role. It's really hard to have like a black and white manual on this is how you do it because each case that comes before you is slightly different. But absolutely, that's really what it's for is to make sure that there's interventions immediately placed into um, position for the families. So this is a, you know, we're talking about wraparound services and there are different areas like um, healthcare and workforce development and, and we're talking about education where it, there does seem to be a real need for for 
you know, quote unquote, wraparound services or looking at the whole person instead of looking at people in these silos. Um, and I, I've actually talked to, you know, like medical providers who, who question like, well, what, where does my role start and stop as a provider versus a social worker? And so it, it does seem to be a missed opportunity, though, to, to not provide wraparound services in so many of these different areas. But it also costs money. So how do you um, keep up with all of the expense of running a school and providing the actual education, but then also all of this other, I mean, it's, it's not a small thing. Great question. So I'll start with just a comment on where does the role of a medical provider or a teacher and a social worker begin and end? We do our best to make the teacher's role teaching. But as a school, we recognize that teachers can't serve effectively students who are hungry, students who are in pain because there's, you know, toothache, you know, students who um, have serious medical needs or students who are really stressed out because there's some stuff going on at home. So while we try to help the teachers to be able to stay focused on being a teacher, we also train them on what are the signs that they're looking for, what are things, and then put systems into place in the school so that these services are provided. So with breakfast, things like teachers have nothing to do with that. So as a school, as an organization, we're able to make sure that those services are in place without stretching a teacher's roles. So there's some things that I think are worth noting that we've tried to be strategic, but we also recognize that it's uh, you're turning a blind eye to an issue that everybody knows exists if you really think that you can bring students into a building, especially students who have a lot of the issues that our kids do, and just teach them. You can't. But the flip side is, is you can't just put all your energy there and not provide high academic um, quality to students. So then on the funding side of that, there, there really are resources out there. It's a matter of being strategic and finding them. We certainly write a lot of grants. As I mentioned, you know, our mobile food pantry that we do for our families, we wrote a grant for that. So there's effort, time um, put into writing those grants. With our school foods program, I mean, we have to write a special application to do the at-risk program, but it doesn't cost us money for the most part. As long as you're running the program right, it pretty much funds itself. So there's a matter of being resourceful. Our dental clinic, we don't pay for that. We partner with another organization. So I think that there's sometimes a myth that it costs a lot of money to do these things because there are resources out there. You have to be resourceful and um, go find these places, you know, find these organizations to partner with. But I really think that a lot of our results are um, correlated with the services that we provide. We, we can serve kids and provide them the academics that they need because we're meeting some of their other needs. Okay. And you also claim to have some of the highest literacy rates in the state. And just on that note, and just very briefly um, on the 100% graduation rate, if you have a student that is just just not doing well and, and actually re- and disenrolls from the school, is, is that not included in that that rate? Or are you only talking about the students that finish? That's a great question. So the data that we provide, all of our data, it comes from state assessment. So whoever was here on those assessment dates, 
is comprised in that data. So yeah, if a student has left our school prior to testing, no, we wouldn't have that student. But I really can throw out there that families and kids flock to our school who are struggling because we've become really known as a place that can support and help kids close that gap. So while we do well and we perform well, kids don't necessarily come here with the skills. Kids develop the skills from being here. And then I do want to speak um, about, you mentioned about kids leaving. So I think that there's an interesting statistic to point out that for the graduation rate, you receive graduation cohort data. And essentially, while we share that we have a 100% graduation rate, I want to throw something out there. So if anybody looks up our graduation rate, they'll be like, eh, that's not truthful. If you look up our graduation rate, you're going to see that we're like at 88% graduation rate. The reason you're going to see that is because there's a shared accountability model in New Mexico. And what that means is that any kid who ever step foot in our high school on any of the state reporting dates is part of your graduation data. So if they come here freshman year, they're here for two reporting periods and they leave, they will count for two sixteenth of their graduation data will count because it's two reporting periods. There's four in each school year times four high school years. So, uh, or sorry, there's yeah, there's four reporting periods times four years. So 16, I don't know, maybe I said that. Anyhow, um, so if you look at our graduation rate and you're like, hey, it says 88%, it accounts for kids who have left. What I want to point out is that based on last year's graduation data, you're able to see any kid who was part of your data but left your school. What we show is that 50% of our kids who leave our high school never graduate high school. So I think that's a pretty compelling statistic that out of that graduating class, that was the 20 class of 2017 that graduated, the data showed that out of every kid who left our school, half never completed high school. I think that says a lot. Okay, I'm speaking with Joanne Mitchell with the Mission Achievement and Success Charter School, and we'll be right back. I'm so thankful for support from Natural Awakenings Magazine in New Mexico, a monthly green, healthy lifestyle publication, and for support from High Desert Yoga, promoting optimum physical health, clarity of mind, and spiritual inspiration for all. Many of you have followed my journey from consulting to women's leadership and empowerment, starting a nonprofit, raising two kids, and everything in between. I've really taken some time this year to focus in on where I can help the most women with their own desire to create social impact and also a good income for themselves and their families. As my consulting and coaching practice is growing, I found that one of my favorite things to do is the free discovery sessions. I love hearing about people's passions for the work they do, sharing what I do, and helping people understand what my hybrid consulting coaching is all about. Hint, hint, serious strategy plus spacious mindset. So if you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing or waking up in the middle of the night anxious about money, lacking energy you need to get everything done, or procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or even if you're in a leadership role, but you're second guessing yourself and not getting things done, I'd love to talk to you. These conversations help me get clear on how I can help more leaders create the impacts and income they want so they can start living with ease and joy. Plus, you'll get a free hour with me to get crystal clear on what you want to create for your company or organization and your life and what's been holding you back. So if you're interested, you can book a call at wellwomanlife.com slash learn more. We're back with Joanne Mitchell with Mission, Mission Achievement and Success School. And we're going into the segment called Superpowers for Success. And this is where we really kind of dive into uh, a quick lightning round of questions with our women leaders um, so that we can really learn 
how you have done what you've done in your life. So Joanne, what does success mean in, in life for you? What does success mean? I think success is personally defined. So I can tell you what it's not. It's not necessarily a dollar value. It's what you put on it personally. And that's one of the things we try to teach students here is that you define this. So if it means for you that you make X number of dollars, then you define success that way. But it's very internal, personal to yourself, and it should be defined by you, not by what other expectations people have put on you. And what is yours? So mine is I, I really have a mission to give back to people and to use my determination, my motivation, like to inspire and support other people to reach their own personal abundance and happiness. Okay. And when did you know, Joanne, that you were really good at what you do? Hmm. I would say when I first got into the field of education is that I just felt like by having personal conversations with kids and families that I really saw my impact. And I think probably my most, the biggest catalyst in my career was I taught and I really enjoyed it, but I, I always felt like there was something more. And then I thought at one point in time, I wanted to be a special ed director. And so I got my admin license and my first position I was offered was um, an assistant principal. They told me pretty much that's the pathway. I absolutely did not want to do it because I was like, I don't feel like dealing with student discipline. And that's often the role of an assistant principal. But interestingly, this is where the catalyst was for me because once I did that role and I saw the impact that I had in working with kids and working with families. And um, when you really sat down with a student who was struggling and was there for disciplinary purposes, if you talk to them, you understood that the behavior meant something. There was a reason those things were happening. And when you got one-to-one -one with a kid and you were like, what's up? They would start telling you stuff that would literally blow your mind. And I think that's where I realized, one, I was good at what I was doing. And two, that by being in an administrative type position, a leadership role, I absolutely had a different type of power, a power to really impact change and do things different. Okay. And I want to ask you the next question, but I want to just say, I have, uh, I've shared this um, recently, this little quote or saying, and it really just speaks to me. And it says, we expect women to work like they don't have children and to raise children as if they don't work. And this is, this kind of like gets to the point of, of what I do on the well woman show. And, and not all of the well woman community are, are moms at all. But this really does get to like the multiple roles that women play and, and all of the stuff that's expected of us. And in order to do, and I know you're a mom, um, in order to do and be who you are in the world and be here for these kids, what do you do on a daily basis to contribute to your own well-being? Oh, that's a great question. I just have so many things to say. You gave me chills with your quote. Um, so for me personally, what what I do is... I meditate, I kind of ground myself, I, I do, I work out, and it's, it's, about, um, it's about me, it's about me time, and it's also about making sure that the body that carries me on this life journey like, is uh, healthy so that I can do the work that I do. And, um, and I just have to add a little bit more that, um, you know, when I opened the school, the one story that I don't always share with folks is that this charter was supposed to open with sixth grade. It was supposed to start with sixth and then scale up to seventh and then so on. And my daughter was struggling immensely in school, immensely. She was having so many struggles. My daughter who was, well, anyhow, so really a big struggle. So 
right before the charter application was due, I modified it to make it open with sixth and seventh grade so that my own daughter would have a school because I just felt like I was at a loss for how to help her. And I felt like I was spending my career supporting other people's children. And I was maybe not doing such a great job with my daughter who was struggling. So this school partly opened because with the grades that it did, because my own child needed that support. And I think that that's one thing that I'll add about our school. I know you didn't really ask me this, but I have to add it with that quote, is that um, we're a very family-friendly organization. And our staff, I I would say 95% of our staff who work here, their children go here. And I really value the fact that when you're a mom and when you're working, like sometimes we have to sacrifice either our careers or we sacrifice, you know, what we provide to our families. And I think that that's one of the other amazing things that we do here is we make this very family friendly. And I say moms because there's a lot of women in education. We certainly have our men here and we appreciate them, but um, there's mostly moms. We've got lots of females here. And it's, they bring their kids, they're able when they have professional development days and kids aren't in school, we allow those kids to come to school. So we have like a bunch of children run around here and stuff. So we're a very family friendly organization because we want all of our folks, you know, women obviously included, to be able to be parents and great parents to their own children, but then to be able to treat these kids like they were their own. And we use that as a mantra a lot of times here that, or a question I should say, we always ask ourselves, would you want this for your child? Would you put your child in this classroom? Would you do this if this was your kid? So it's a driving question here because we don't want people to be in a position where they have to choose between career and family. They should be able to have both. Yeah, and it is such a thing for women because of uh, obviously just the history of, of women in the workforce and, and women as nurturers and moms. And and there just is nothing like the pressure of trying to figure out what to do with you know, needing to go to to your work, and also having a child. So, um, and also on the family friendly note, um, I will circle back with you about that because I actually one of my other hats is, and many of my listeners know this, I run the Family Friendly Business Award, and so we have employers all across the state um, applying for this award because they have family friendly policies in the workplace for their employees. Um, okay, so Joanne, what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? Hmm. I think the superpower is just realizing that um, the the impact that we have with our families, you know, our, our statistics speak for themselves, I think, you know, with graduation rates and things of that nature, but there are individual stories where, you know, family after family has been so impacted by what we do. And I think it comes down to um, taking time to sit down and get to know your folks and um, learn their story. And so I think the superpower is recognizing that our impact is so much bigger than mine, but also ours, you know, as an organization, because sometimes we get the story because we sit down, we take the time to ask or, you know, or they volunteer and tell us. But most of the time we don't hear those stories and we'll never realize the impact we have. But that is a superpower. I think that not only do I have, but anybody who works in this organization has. And I think people who work in in any field really have, if they take the time to like recognize and just give a hundred percent of what they're doing to whatever they're doing, you never know the impact you've had on somebody's life. Okay. And what advice would you give your say 25 year old self? My 25 year old self, I would probably go back and tell her to, um, be more courageous, you know? So I, I think that especially coming from the background, I 
came from. There was so much doubt. And it's something that I still think that I have to admit that I still work on a little bit is just reminding myself that I'm powerful. And I'm hesitant to use that word because it's not about a power trip type thing, but recognizing that I probably am not even touching on the impact that I can have if I would just be brave, you know? And I think that going back when I was 25, that there was a lot more hesitation because I was still trying to get over feeling like an imposter that I was pretending I was something that I wasn't, or I was pretending that I could do bigger things because in my mind, it was certain types of people who did that, not somebody who came from poverty and somebody whose parents never graduated. It literally was probably in the last maybe five years that I've ever told my personal story. I never would talk about my personal story because it was such an embarrassment to me of where I came from. And I felt like if people knew who I was and what I came from, that they would look at me and say, well, who do you think you're kidding? Do you know? So it was really hard for me to tell that story. But then I think that I also felt so empowered once I finally released it. And then I also found that the authenticity made other people who were like me recognize that wow, there's somebody who did it. So maybe I can do it too. Yeah, definitely. As leaders, we, we do need to tap into those stories and, and who we are and not just authentically be, be that. But I'm interested in how you uh, went from not telling the story to now sharing it very, or, you know, you articulate it very well and it, and you don't get caught up in the story while you're telling the story. Did you have to do a lot of work to get there? That's a great question. I, I, I think so. Uh, you know, some of it was honestly reading. I'm an avid reader. I absolutely love reading. And, um, and so I, I think reading a lot of books on folks who have achieved like greatness. And I think the thing that I've enjoyed the most about reading about different, particularly women, like, you know, I, I love Lisa Nichols work and um, Louise Hayes work. And there's lots of different women that I really look up to in like their work. And when you read it and you hear their backstory, most of the people that I look up to the most and authors that I really enjoy reading about, they have a pretty tough backstory. And I think that some of my, um, I don't know, the feeling that I could release and tell this was one, recognizing that that doesn't have to be my story. That's, that's, that's what got me where I am, you know, because I chose to overcome it. But it doesn't have to be my story that because I came from that, I have to stay there, you know. And I think that by being able to read about other people and kind of seeing that they were really raw and authentic and shared this made it a little bit easier. And the first time I ever told the story was to my own staff. And, um, and it was hard. I got choked up. I still sometimes get choked up when I when I tell people, especially if I'm talking to a bigger group. It's it's sometimes it's hard for me to to be raw and put myself out there like that. But I also feel like the more that I'm willing to do that, um, it, it creates possibility. It creates belief, and it also really tells people who I am. I, I don't try to pretend that I know everything, but I I can tell I can tell you with confidence that. I know what it feels like in many ways to be the children that we serve here. I was one of those. Okay, couple few more questions here. Do you identify as a feminist? I do. And I think sometimes when you use that term, people misassociate the term with that if you're a feminist that you are anti-man. <laughs> Definitely not. To me, I identify with it because it talks about like empowering women. To me, that's how I define that. It's not about being anti-something. It's more about empowering women and helping other women understand like the strengths that we bring and that we certainly are different from men, but we, we equally bring something valuable to the table. We're just different. And what makes a good leader, Joanne? <sighs> 
I think a good leader, I, I think one is, um, there has to be some confidence there. I think it's a balance of having confidence and then being able to listen. Um, I also think that it's um, staying really true to your purpose and your values. I think that the more you can stay values aligned, it makes it easier. In leadership, you're always going to make decisions that's that are going to make somebody uncomfortable, that somebody's not going to like. But I think that when leadership is coupled with knowledge of your values and then alignment, where all decisions are made in alignment with your values, it's much easier to lead an organization, lead people, and to follow through with um, what you stand for. Okay, last question. What are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? Right now, I'm reading a book called How the Other Half Learns, and it's a book about um, some a charter school network in New York City um, about Harlem Success Academies, and uh, it's a relatively newly released book that is um, completely intriguing, so I'm reading that. And then aside from that, I usually read a, a couple, maybe a few books at the same time, obviously not exactly the same time, but I bounce. And the other one I'm reading is a book called Quiet, and it's about introverts, because believe it or not, people are always surprised to hear this, I'm very introverted, and I really require that quiet time to refuel and to recharge myself. So I'm bouncing between those two books. Joanne, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your well woman life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week. So be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.